welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. Here we are over seven months into this project, this critical education, this community building project, and we are headed into what looks like another spike in the COVID indicators, daily, daily positive results, death tolls increasing once again, and it does seem that Shelter and Solidarity, this distanced, socially distanced solidarity project will be with you for some time to come. The need seems to be enduring. Here we are eight months into this pandemic. I'm Joe Ramsey, your host, Zooming, live streaming with you from Dorchester, Massachusetts on the south side of Boston. As, and we are welcoming you here today for our very special show here on November 19th, Populism, Peril, or Promise? Populism, Peril, or Promise? And we are lucky today to have a tremendous guest joining us, Mike Lansing, about whom you will hear much more in a moment with the help of our co-producer and now co-host, I'm proud to say, my comrade, Mark Soderstrom. Mark, take it away. You're going to lead the Mark is going to lead the discussion today. I'll just remind everyone who's on our live Zoom, obviously, that we please keep your mic muted during the first part of the show when we're discussing with Mike Lansing. Um, and about an hour in, as usual, we will open it up to live discussion. At which point, we welcome your questions and comments. We do strive to build a community dialogue here at Shelter and Solidarity. Uh, Mark, take it away. Thank you, Joe. Um, I am pleased and honored for us to have the chance this evening to talk to my good friend and colleague Michael Lansing about some of these very important issues around populism and small d democracy, both in the present and in our past. Um, Michael is a historian at Augsburg College in Minneapolis and has published on the history of the nonpartisan league in the upper Midwest and Pacific Northwest. Um, and it is a real pleasure to invite him this evening. Michael, welcome to Shelter and Solidarity. Um, just to sort of open, Michael, I was wondering if you would be willing to sort of begin this evening with some of the scope of your observations around some of the key issues of populism and small d democracy in our present moment, uh, particularly as we are moving or hopefully moving from a Trump regime to a Biden presidency. What are, what are some of the issues that populism brings to the table? Well, first of all, I just want to say how thankful I am to be here. And thanks to Joe and Mark and the producers uh, for having me on and to talk about this super important topic, or at least I think it's important. Um, you know, as I look at the landscape at, towards the end of November in 2020, and I look at the current situation and having uh, these multiple and overlapping crises that we're facing, right? Uh, the virus obviously has laid bare precarity in our society in new ways. Uh, there's an economic crisis. We have a crisis of mass incarceration, racialized policing. We have an ongoing climate crisis and a host of other issues that we're facing. And the system, that is, of the electoral system in the United States produced the results that it produced. It produced uh, Joe Biden uh, in his late 70s, a uh, member of the U.S. Senate for decades, um, former vice president. Uh, you know, uh, many people are asking, is this that the, be the best the Democratic Party could come up with? Um, and with that in mind, that I think that grassroots movements um, of nearly every sort 
need to be thinking about not just the power in the street, but also the power at the ballot box, because we often think about those two things as separated, when in fact they can be, and in the past have been connected. Um, and perhaps most importantly, uh, right now, I would encourage uh, anyone who's interested in participatory democracy or already engaged in the wide variety of movements for justice that one finds all over the country, whether they're local movements or whether you're part of a national movement, to be thinking about the election system. Um, the system produced this outcome, um, a system that is flooded with corporate money, a system with uh, uh, party leaders largely in control at the state and at the federal level, um, a host of other issues. Uh, I would suggest that um, people who are engaged in grassroots movements need to be thinking about and pushing for, alongside all their other um, activities and all their other work, they need to be pushing for the public funding of political campaigns. They need to be pushing to abolish the electoral college. They need to be thinking about pushing for statehood for Washington DC, as well as for Puerto Rico. Um, voter registration reform is needed in almost every state. And of course, the reinstatement of some key provisions of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court ruled problematic in 2013. I, this, I, the list just goes on and on. In other words, I think we need to work outside the system and inside the system. And by changing the system itself, more than changing a particular political party or even following a particular political candidate um, could produce some very different outcomes in the future that could create more space for some more radical change. Those are, you know, wonderful sort of observations and ideas. And, and I think some folks would be, would be surprised to hear those being touted as a populist platform at the moment, right? I mean, in certain respects, uh, even my colleagues and my friends seem to listen to the New York Times and even uh, public radio these days. And we're told over and over again that the country has made a populist turn by electing Trump a billionaire, or we have or a acclaimed billionaire, or Berlusconi in Europe who really is a billionaire. Um, and these people we are told are populists. Um, and what you've described doesn't sound like their platform at all. Uh, it sounds a lot like the Populist Party, the Farmers Alliance, the Nonpartisan League. How did, could you walk us through a little bit about how um, a term that comes out of uh, left-wing radical or reform political movements uh, has evolved over time to become a shorthand for a, for a right-wing politics of reaction and, and the wealthy. Uh, it's, it's confusing for a lot of people, I think. It's super confusing. And I would argue it's super problematic. And, and in fact, as a historian, I would argue that most of the time when I see the word populism used anywhere uh, in journalism, social media, even sometimes in scholarly work, uh, I cringe a little bit. Um, and I cringe a little bit because most of the time it's used in an ahistorical way. That is that there is a complete lack of understanding um, and a misuse of the term as a category of analysis. So populism um, as, as a word literally is born in 1891 and it's used to describe the orientation uh, of the People's Party, um, which is emerging at that point and will first run candidates at the federal level in 1892. Um, and populism is associated with the aspiration for a uh, multiracial economic democracy. 
Now, the People's Party of the 1890s was profoundly uneven as it aspired to that goal. Um, it was profoundly uneven, in fact. But it's important to note that that is what populism is. Populism is meant to expand the notion of we the people. It was a, a, a variety of forms of working across difference, different types of alliances between workers and farmers. Um, in some cases, in the American South, there were even moments where you saw African-American populists working alongside white populists. Um, and this is the 1890s, the moment when Jim Crow is ascending. Um, and of course, there were hundreds of thousands of Black populists in a largely parallel movement. So this is a profoundly significant moment in American history. And the term populism is best used when we describe that moment. Um, in the 1900s, early 1900s, 1920s, all the way into the 1930s, the term populism is largely associated with that very particular orientation. Uh, once again, a attempt or an aspiration for a multiracial economic democracy, um, as expressed not only in formal electoral politics, but in movement making, because of course there were a variety of movements that led to the creation of the People's Party as a formal third party in the 1890s. And when the Great Depression hits, uh, there are a number of historians and scholars who were already by that point uh, saying like, hey, here's an opportunity um, to uh, try to imagine what populism might look like today. They would argue about whether or not Roosevelt's New Deal in fact embodied populism. That's an argument some would want to continue to have. But nonetheless, everyone seemed to understand what the word populism referred to. And it was still almost always used with a capital P. Um, the shift, I would argue, in terms of where the confusion really begins is in the 1950s. Um, it's in the era of Joseph McCarthy and McCarthyism, the Red Scare. Um, it's in a, in a moment when a number of liberal consensus intellectuals are deeply concerned about this, this, this this problem that's emerging that so many Americans across the country, so many regular Americans seem to be supporting this person in the US Senate who's clearly violating norms and destroying lives and calling out the original kind of call out culture, calling out uh, any number of forms of behavior, making up charges um, and seizing the attention of the nation. Um, and in the context of the Red Scare, also in the context of the post-World War II moment, when there are deep-seated concerns about, well, what exactly went wrong in Germany? A number of social scientists and historians start to imagine populism, the 1890s version, as especially problematic, as a kind of proto-McCarthyism. Um, Richard Hofstetter is the most famous person uh, to do this work, but he's not the only one. A number of people in sociology and political science do it as well. And that's the moment when populism starts being used with the lowercase p, and that's the moment when suddenly people with right-wing uh, demagoguery, uh, fascism, um, racism, uh, the opposite of the aspiration of the original populace, uh, the aspiration to be inclusive across different types of identities, it's when that goes away. Um, and suddenly the term populism uh, reads almost as a synonym for demagoguery or nativism or a host of other forms of cancers on the body politic. And once that kind of is established in the 1950s, that's when you see this shift, when the word populism starts to be used and deployed by multiple kinds of people um, to 
be, you know, defining all types of movements, but especially movements on the right, especially movements on the right. Um, in the years since, historians have pushed back hard against Hofstadter's understanding of populism. There's a whole shelf full of books that one could point to, suggesting that his historical characterization of the populists in the 1890s was at best problematic. Um, nonetheless, I think what's really interesting is that the, this misuse of the term populism, taking it out of its historical context, using it to describe movements and leaders that are almost the exact opposite of what uh, the People's Party stood for in the 1890s, very much defines its use today. So um, we can go, as you noted, to a newspaper, we can go online, we can, we can read uh, peer-reviewed scholarly work in a wide range of disciplines, and Bolsonaro is a populist in Brazil, and Le Pen is a populist in France, and Boris Johnson is a populist, um, when in fact, none of those people stand for anything resembling economic democracy, let alone the other aspirations for systemic change that the People's Party and the original capital P populist stood for in the 1890s. I'd be curious to know if you think that there's the, the, a struggle around the word, is it worth trying to save the word and, and re, 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 reclaim populism as a positive term? I mean, I've noticed that what, what has taken its place seems to be the word progressivism which actually as a historian, I have a problem with because I associate progressivism exactly with that post 1950s efficiency, the experts will control and do right for other people. Whereas populist seems to me to people doing it for themselves. Is there, is there a value to trying to reclaim, reclaim the, the term and the concept populism in your thought or is it a lost cause at this point? You know, there are still some debates that I have with colleagues about this, colleagues who are deeply vested in the use of this word um, and doing so in kind of what we would imagine as uh, left of center circles. Um, I actually think it's not much use to try to reclaim it. Um, that's why I like to use the word small d democracy or um, the phrase grassroots democracy or talk about civic agency, um, talk about uh, uh, democracy uh, as a form of everyday living. Uh, to use the John Dewey kind of formulation. Um, I think in some ways it's, it's crucial to connect um, this very particular tradition that's also very particular to the United States, to be frank, um, and to see that there are more connections between um, populism of the 1890s uh, and say uh, African-American freedom movements in the 1960s than there are between, say, populism in the 1890s and uh, uh, Donald Trump um, and uh, his followers in 2016 or 2020. It's a it's an important question, um, and and sort of a vexed and a difficult one when words begin to change their meaning. What what's the how how do you how do you keep concepts alive? Um, Joe, did you did you have something you would like to put in at this point as co-host? Yeah, I do have a couple things here um, that, uh, including a couple uh, questions coming off the chat box uh, that I'd like to flag. But first, I wanted to mention first up for those who don't know, uh, Mike is uh, the author of this really fascinating book. I am just diving into Insurgent Democracy. Great title. I hope we can talk about later. Uh, the Nonpartisan League in North American Politics. I'm sure many people on this call, despite being very involved in left 
politics may have never even heard of the nonpartisan league. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into that discussion. But what I wanted to see if I could, Mike, with your permission, uh, ask you to respond to another book engaging populism and its changing meaning over time, its appropriation, and particularly not only populism as it's been uh, misunderstood in more recent times and, and, and as that term has been appropriated by uh, right-wing ideologues, demagogues, uh, such as Donald Trump. Uh, I wondered if you could, you know, if you might be interested in commenting on Thomas Frank's recent book, uh, The People Know, I have it in my other hand here, um, and his book seems as concerned with reclaiming or at least reminding folks about what populism once meant, as, but also in zooming in on anti-populism, right? I mean, of course, Frank having a long kind of standing critique of, of the tendencies within the Democratic Party and the kind of abandonment of any notion of working class solidarity. I just wanted to read a brief uh, couple sentences from Frank here to get your response to it. And then we will, and then, uh, you know, maybe next time Mark calls on me, we'll flag some questions in the, in the chat and bring them in a little earlier. But Frank writes kind of towards the opening of the end of his, his, his opening in the people know, right? The people as in no, not the people. That's scary, right? To anti-populist. He says, it is my argument that reversing the meaning of populist tells us something important about the people who reversed it. Denunciations of populism like the ones we hear so frequently nowadays arise from a long tradition of pessimism about popular sovereignty and democratic participation. And it is that pessimism, that tradition of quasi aristocratic scorn that has allowed the paranoid right to flower so abundantly. I mean, I, I wonder if you might make a comment on anti-populism as a part, part or anti quote unquote populism as, as a part of this mix, kind of almost defining the, the, the term negatively, and also just respond to kind of Frank's book. I know you're familiar with, with what he's written, and of course, you know, his books make a big splash in some circles and maybe don't reach others, but um, kind of curious how you position yourself in relationship to, to Frank's notion of populism and, and anti-populism. Well, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to Frank's uh, orientation and argument there, uh, to be completely honest. You know, he's been using essentially that critique of um, of neoliberalism since the late 1990s, or even before that, when he was when he helped start the Baffler, and and Frank in this book, I think, has come to a kind of culmination and laid out or tried to lay out a particular trajectory as well as to reclaim the term populist. Um, our leading historian of the 1890s People's Party, Charles Postel, um, has done the same in outlets like uh, Jacobin and Dissent. Um, basically saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. That's not what this means. Um, and I think that's important work. That's important work. I do think that uh, that argument and that debate can take up a lot of the oxygen in the room when in fact we should be talking about uh, civic agency and everyday democracy, um, which is a deep-seated and long-standing tradition um, in American life that in has involved and encompassed nearly every type of American one can imagine. In other words, you've seen expressions of it, not just with mostly uh, ethnically white farmers, um, but in nearly every group of Americans actually trying to put the we back into we the people. Um, and at the same time, as Frank points out, there's a long history of uh, certain Americans not wanting that to happen. Um, and I think we need to call it out, if, if anything, um, one of the, the flaws with Frank's book is that he starts in the 1890s, that he starts with the People's Party. Um, and if, you, if we get stuck with this category of, and this term populism, 
we don't see the ways in which elites have actually tried to limit democracy um, going very back to the founding of the country. And there are lots of different ways around racial and gender identity, most obviously and uh, most acutely. When we think about the 1780s and we think about who's deciding what it even means to be a citizen and who gets to have that kind of ability and access to be a citizen. Um, we see it in the constitution, the, the so-called three-fifths clause, right? Um, actually, we have to understand the constitution itself as a counter-revolutionary document. Um, we have to understand that the constitution uh, was set up to, to protect uh, government from the people. Um, James Madison talks about that directly. Um, one of the most important books written by historians about the Constitutional Convention is called The Founder's Coup. Um, the Articles Confederation clearly wasn't working very well, but the group that gathered in Philadelphia, not only did they meet in closed session um, in 1787, but they met without any type of authority to completely throw out what was existing. Um, and to start over and to start anew. Uh, the, the great irony about the Constitution is that it begins with that clause, we the people. And of course, different types of groups of Americans have been leveraging the heck out of that phrase ever since, and with some effect. Um, we've come some ways, even though we have some ways to go, obviously. But I think that uh, anti-populism is actually anti-democracy. And I think that it has existed since the beginning of the Republic, that the Republic itself is founded on it. And I think that we cannot understand this moment um, if we do not understand that. In other words, why do we have this electoral college? Why is it that the, the last two GOP presidents um, came into office with a minority of the popular vote? Um, it's because the system was producing that. The system is built to produce it. And that's even before the 1890s, the system is set up that way. Um, at the same time, the Constitution has the seeds of its own uh, new possibilities as uh, movements for abolition, women's rights, um, and a host of others from the early 19th century on have laid claim to. So I'm very sympathetic to Frank. I like a lot of what he says. I love how he pieces together this tradition from the 1890s to the present and tries to draw a through line. Um, I actually think he should have talked a little more about the popular front in the late 1930s. I think he should have talked about the Wallace campaign for the presidency in 1948. I was stunned to see that that was not mentioned at all. Um, but so far, it's the best, I would argue, it's the best kind of synthesis we have of laying out this much longer trajectory in American political, social, and economic life. Yeah, just a quick follow-up on that. Uh, I mean, I think... Uh, really interesting points about the, the limits of the book as well as its strengths. I appreciate that. Um, one thing I was struck by and just kind of perusing the book again, just kind of going through my notes, prep in, you know, right before tonight's discussion is the way in which, you know, Frank kind of makes an interesting argument about how at least like the left parts of the left in the United States, at least kind of po post 1960s, seem to have framed, he argues, their kind of alternative radical agenda in opposition to a notion of the people, the American people, which has in fact been framed right through this pseudo populism that makes the American people look more backward and reactionary than they in fact are. And so, I mean, I think this idea, you know, this notion of reclaiming the e even the American people as a we rather than as a they against which, you know, the true radicals must kind of you know, take the position of denouncing, right, you know, 
put, you know, as, as a, I think he quotes Jefferson airplane, right. It's like put the motherfuckers against the wall or whatever. I mean, it's kind of like a weather, you know, the kind of weather underground kind of tendency of like feed, the, no, don't, don't be like Mao and, you know, serve the people, you know, serve the people's shit. Right. This idea that the American people themselves are so compromised, right. Uh, politically by whatever racism, imperialism, you know, et cetera, that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't be whoever the left as a, we shouldn't actually be identifying with, America as all at all. Uh, I mean, that's more of a comment than a question, but I wondered if you might, you know, reflect on it. And I guess related to that, I actually like to call up Victor Wallace's question from the chat box. You know, didn't Tom Watson, a populist leader, right, uh, important populist leader, you know, flip from his multiracial approach in the 1890s and kind of become an emblem of white supremacy uh, in a way? And also, we had a question also related from Jasmine Collins in the in the chat books about whether or not the term populism had appeared outside the United States early in the 19th century, a bit of a, just want to flag that. But I mean, I'm just kind of interested in this. I mean, is there a, do you see a danger that in the way that the, the, the kind of appropriation of populism and of the American people has in fact become internalized on the left to the point that people envision politics not as a kind of democratic struggle with actual existing people, but as, I don't know, some kind of anti-populist project? Yeah, I mean, there are certain strains of the left that clearly articulate that and what I think are problematic ways. I mean, um, people who study civic agency, people who study grassroots democracy, um, make it very clear whether they're political scientists or sociologists or community organizers actually doing the work on the ground, union organizers, they always talk about how you have to build relationships across difference, right? Um, that you are building relationships across difference. Um, the old Alinsky idea that you're building relationships across difference based on shared self-interest. Um, I think if that's yoked to particular forms of, well, to particular political goals, as well as particular political projects, uh, it can be a very, very powerful thing. And I think that the left overlooks that possibility um, at its own peril. Um, it's very easy in politics generally um, to become a purist. Um, and I think that it's possible to engage in work across difference um, around justice questions of many and varied sorts and to hold straight, straight up, to hold on to your very specific ideas, but to be able to find common ground to work with others that don't have your exact same ideologies. And we have a long tradition of doing that in the United States. The, the People's Party is one example. I would argue African-American freedom movements are another example. Um, and we learn a great deal when we start thinking about um, black freedom movements uh, in the post-World War II period as a form of people power, as a form of we the people politics. So for instance, uh, one of my heroes, the great Ella Baker, maybe one of the best organizers ever in the history of the United States, she would always say that strong people don't need strong leaders, right? She, she would always try to encourage people to listen to each other, to, for them to articulate their own problems and then to articulate their own solutions together. Um, and she, of course, had had experiences in cooperative movements, uh, African-American cooperative movements in the early 1930s. Um, she had experience um, rubbing uh, shoulders with members of the CP as well as uh, CIO organizers, along with the longstanding freedom movement work that she had been a part of since she was a young woman. And I think that um, 
there's actually a generational thing that you see. People who came out of the CIO experience or the popular front experience, they understood coalition building in a way that the new left found harder to fulfill, which is actually one of the things that Frank points out in, in his book. And I, I think he's right about that. Um, in terms of Tom Watson, absolutely Tom Watson flips. Uh, that's why I was careful to say that the People's Party in the 1890s um, aspired, aspired to be a multiracial economic democracy. Um, our best book on black populism by Omar Ali um, suggests that essentially um, for various uh, reasons defined by African-Americans in the South themselves, they organized separately, but then would sometimes engage in fusion politics with white populists across the South. And it's important to remember that there are hundreds of thousands of black populists um, in the 1890s, that it is a, a very powerful element of African-American movement traditions as well. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thank you, Mike. That's a lot to think about. And, and Joe was very kind to sort of pick up and show your book to, to, to everyone. Theoretical questions become clearer when you've got also some content and historical context. So um, you published specifically on the history of the Nonpartisan League um, in the Upper Midwest, the Northern Rockies, Pacific Northwest. Um, this is um, a movement that's really mostly left our, our historical memory and consciousness. And yet it was incredibly involved in, in reform and radical politics. It's at the root of universal healthcare in Canada. Um, and yet somehow we, we often don't remember it. Um, I'm wondering if you could bring some of that history to folks here and give a little frame to your historical work and how it relates to the issues you've just been talking about. Absolutely. So, uh, so my book uh, is about one of these, uh, one of the movements in this tradition, and one of the movements in this tradition that happens after the People's Party of the 1890s. Now, it still involves farmers, and it still involves farmers in the Trans-Mississippi West. And I have to be frank, I did not plan on writing a book about mostly white dead farmers. Uh, nothing sexy about that. We live in an urban time. Um, we, we, we think about rural America in particular ways. I, I know we're going to hopefully talk about that later on. Um, th there's nothing sexy um, on the surface about this, this farmer movement um, from the upper Midwest. Starts in North Dakota, of all places, in the middle of the 19-teens. And yet, um, in the early 2000s, when we were confronting endless war, um, we were confronting um, so many of the problems that we were facing now, and of course the 2008 economic crisis. Um, I, I looked around. I was like, "Wow, how do I?" I mean, I'd been studying social movements uh, as a historian for years. I'd done all this reading, but I actually didn't know how they worked, like how one could do that work. Right? I was stuck in the kind of ivory tower, and so. Um, uh, I turned to, uh, I live in Minneapolis, lived in the Twin Cities a long time, and I turned to a local example, um, and I started unpacking the ways in which we might think about how to deal with climate change, and how we might think about how to deal with mass incarceration, um, and embedded structural racism, and because what I figured out is, is you actually have to engage in politics of every sort to do that kind of work. And engagement in politics means better understanding even electoral politics. So suddenly I became a kind of historian of politics and started looking at this farmers movement. 
So it's a movement made up of farmers. It's born in North Dakota in 1915. Essentially, you have North and South Dakota, Western Minnesota, Eastern Montana as a, a hinterland of Minneapolis as an urban center. It's a wheat growing hinterland. And of course, remember that Minneapolis in the 1880s becomes the center of flour milling in the world. It's where industrial carbohydrates are essentially born. Um, there have been flour milling um, as a feature of settler culture and uh, European culture for thousands and thousands of years, um, but at the scale, at the scale of factory and large numbers of wage laborers and machinery. That was invented in Minneapolis in the 1880s and it was entirely dependent on these rural areas growing wheat. And essentially the economic game was rigged. The farmers knew that populism, the capital P populist of the 1890s had not been able to fix the problems that these particular farmers faced. And so in the early 1900s, they start engaging in um, small scale and then large scale cooperative organizing. And cooperative organizing gets them so far, but they realize that they actually have to engage the levers of government. And so in 1916, this new uh, organization, it's not a party, it's a membership-based political organization, the Nonpartisan League. And by the way, very, very clearly nonpartisan deliberately by design, um, starts running candidates um, for statewide offices in North Dakota. Um, by 1918, they will have taken over that state's government. They'll be spreading to 12 other states. They actually also start organizing in Saskatchewan and Alberta, um, which is also a kind of wheat hinterland of Winnipeg, which is a secondary market of Minneapolis. And um, this, this notion of a nonpartisan league takes off it's a membership-based political organization. It takes advantage of this new expansion of democratic structures, like the ones I started out talking about, the open primary, which was a new innovation in the early 1900s. And that creation of an open primary actually allowed for this idea to work. Essentially, what you do is you take uh, a membership-based organization, you build it around a platform rather than people, and in this case, the platform was about reducing the economic power of the Minneapolis milling industry and transportation interests. And so they wanted a state-owned grain elevator and a state-owned flour mill in North Dakota. They also wanted a state-owned bank, um, all three of which were eventually established, by the way, in 1921, all three of which are still in operation, uh, celebrating their 100th anniversaries this year and next. Um, and these folks are not socialists. There were a number of socialists who were involved in the creation of this nonpartisan organization, but it also brought in Republicans and even the few Democrats that could be found on the Northern Plains at the time. And by focusing on a particular platform, you brought farmers together across a wide range of difference. And this is really important because North Dakota we think of today as the heart of whiteness. Um, North Dakota in 1910 has more foreign born uh, residents than any other state in the country. And they are not just ethnically different from each other, they're practicing different religions. There's a, there are a number of small pockets of Syrian immigrants who are practicing Islam in North Dakota. Um, some argue that the first mosque in, in the United States was created in North Dakota in the 1930s, in the little town of Ross. Um, like there are lots of different types of uh, ways in which these people could not get together. Um, and yet this focus on a platform and not a candidate, this focus on a particular set of things we want to do 
is what leads the Nonpartisan League uh, into the halls of power in North Dakota and allows them to establish these state industries. Um, in some ways, this idea is really about taking cooperation, and by cooperation, I mean the cooperative movement, um, like what you might do with your grocery co-op, and using that same idea and taking it into electoral politics. Right? It's not an accident that they had been deeply involved in cooperative movements of their own making before they create this nonpartisan league. Um, but in the book, um, I not only do I track its expansion across different parts of the Trans-Mississippi West and into the Prairie Provinces in Canada, but I suggest that in some ways it's the most successful agrarian movement in US history. After all, these state industries persist in North Dakota, which we think of, once again, as a very red state. Um, it's probably the biggest challenge to party politics as usual in US history. Um, and I would argue also that finally the league invented strategies and tactics for electoral politics that are too often overlooked today. And the reason they're often overlooked, the reason many of us have never heard of this movement, the, the reason that even though I had grown up in this region, completely misunderstood what all this was about, even as a trained historian, before I started my research for this book, is because it happened in North Dakota, right? Who thinks of innovation as something that emanates from North Dakota? I mean, innovation in anything, let alone in politics, especially the way we're conditioned to imagine rural America today. So the league um, takes power in the late 19-teens. By the early 1920s, uh, its uh, statewide officials are recalled by the voters of North Dakota. Uh, the recall, another structural reform that the League had put in place to further democratize the system. Um, one piece of the League actually ends up becoming a wing of the Republican Party in North Dakota, and that tradition continues in the late 1950s and early 1960s. It actually joins with the Democratic Party in North Dakota. Um, and it becomes, even today, if you go to North Dakota, the Democratic Party there is called the DNPL. Um, it's also important to note that the nonpartisan thing was for real. Um, in Minnesota, of course, um, the nonpartisan league took off and became eventually the farmer wing of the Farmer Labor Party of the 1930s, um, mostly working inside the Republican Party in Minnesota. In Montana and in Colorado and in Idaho, the Nonpartisan League worked mostly in the Democratic Party. And in fact, in Idaho, the Nonpartisan League became so powerful that in 1918, the state legislature voted to end the open primary, to go back to the kind of party bosses and conventions and smoke-filled rooms. They literally withdrew democracy from the people because the League was proving to be such a challenge to both established parties. So this notion of nonpartisanship um, and this commitment to a platform over a candidate um, produced all kinds of flexibility. And finally, they focused on local and state level races. Uh, there's not this approach of trying to take the presidency that you see in the People's Party in the 1890s. This is one of the lessons of the 1890s. They're like, look, third party politics doesn't work. And they're like, furthermore, we can affect the change we need at the local and state level. I'll stop there. Well, we've had some questions in the uh, in the chat box, which I think are telling, right? Um, and they and folks would like you to actually confirm that yes, these institutions, the grain elevator, the uh, the bank, are celebrating their hundredth anniversary, but are they still state owned? Um, and yes, absolutely, they are. And it's amazing when you think about it, right? Because 
Uh, the last statewide Democrat to hold office in North Dakota was Heidi Heidkamp, Heidi Heidkamp excuse me, the senator who, of course, lost re-election in 2018. Um, and the Democratic Party in North Dakota is on its heels right now. But whether they were Republicans or Democrats, uh, for the last 100 years in North Dakota politics, the state industries, the state bank, the state grain elevator, and the state flour mill, which PS makes products that I can buy in my local grocery store, and I do, by the way, um, they, they are like the third rail of North Dakota politics. Nobody touches them. Nobody touches them. North Dakota has benefited greatly from a state bank, as well as from state-owned industries that are at the center in some ways, not just of their agricultural tradition, but of their agricultural economy today. Yeah, there are a lot of public banking advocates who use North Dakota as a model and uh, as a reason why public banking would be so important for cities like Oakland or California. Their public bank movement has done a, spent a lot of time looking at, uh, at North Dakota. I, I actually, I sent some of their public banking movement your book because um, I thought they needed to read it. Uh, but um, it is, it's, it's still a fascinating thing that it's hard for people to, to wrap their head around that North Dakota is the center of state-owned industries. Um, and and you, you started talking about some of the lessons of nonpartisan. I'm wondering if you would, would sort of apply that directly to, to some of the issues at the moment. You know, we've seen the rise of the Sanders campaign uh, sort of heralding some new moves in the Democratic Party. Uh, we've seen dramatic growth in the Democratic Socialists over the last decade, and they're sort of struggling with, do we continue to work inside the Democratic Party? Do we try, you know, are there are people who are talking about reform or establishing third parties at the moment? Um, what would be your, what historical lessons would you draw from your work for those people who are talking about? Um, Anti-monopolistic. And what it means to be middle class after the 1930s is something different. It means that you either own or aspire to own a single family home. It means that you're, um, you imagine yourself as a professional, which in and of itself is a form of separation from a broader group of people. And then um, it's manifested in various forms of um, consumption, everything from access to a four-year degree to what kind of car you drive. And that shift in the middle class, which is both material and cultural, um, I think made it much harder for this kind of working class, middle class coalition to emerge in that post-war period. Um, and in fact, the other piece of that is uh, anti-communism, right? Um, anti-communism not only destroyed the CP and other left movements or largely drove them underground in the late 40s and early 1950s, or frankly, starting in the late 1930s, it actually also did undid much of the small producer tradition in the upper Midwest in particular. Um, a really significant organization in the 30s and 40s, the Farmers Union, that kind of picked up where the league uh, uh, left off. Um, they got red baited like crazy, right? Um, the Farmer Holiday Association in the 1930s in Iowa red baited um, in the 30s. Um, the senator from South Dakota, Carl Munt, was uh, Joseph McCarthy's right-hand person in the Senate in the early 1950s. He'd been red baiting for over a decade in the Dakotas. So um, I think it's also important to, so we can talk about the shifts in what it means to be middle class, um, which are both material and cultural. And then I think the thing that I didn't talk about, um, which is this anti-communism, which itself becomes cultural. Like we wanna talk about culture in a broader way. Um, it becomes a crucial part, in fact, of 
um, a way we might answer Brian's question. And that is that one of the reasons on election night, you look and you see red North Dakota and red South Dakota and red Iowa. First of all, I mean, I just love the irony of red being associated with the GOP. I mean, I assume I'm not the only one, please tell me, I'm not the only one laughing at the television every time I see it, I just can't get over it. Yeah, okay, thank you, I can't get over it. Um, and that is that um, there's this shift, there's a you know anti-monopoly politics uh, in the upper Midwest that's very powerful before World War II, there's a uh, anti-militarism politics that's very powerful. Um, so powerful it starts to blend into, uh, in, it starts to extend little connections to anti-Semitism in the American First Movement. Um, uh, even though the, the uh, Catholic and Protestant people living in the Dakotas or Minnesota uh, were no more anti-Semitic than anybody you might find in New York or Boston. Um, they were just as, but no more. Um, that tradition of anti-militarism, that tradition of anti-monopolism is transformed after the war. Um, it's transformed after the war because of anti-communism, is transformed after the war because of the military industrial complex. There are huge Air Force bases in Rapid City, South Dakota, Minot, North Dakota, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Um, and those military bases bring thousands of military personnel every year, many of whom, not all of whom, but many of them bring particular cultural and political understandings with them that historians are saying actually transformed that space in the 50s and 60s. Um, Brian might want to remind us that, you know, there was this guy named George McGovern. I know Mark was interested in talking about this, but there's this guy named George McGovern who was this very liberal Democratic Senator, US Senator from the state of South Dakota. It's him and Joseph McCarthy's right-hand person serving side by side in the Senate for South Dakota in the 1960s, right? And you might go like, what? McGovern's connected to this older tradition of anti-militarism, this older tradition of anti-monopolism. Um, uh, very churchy, McGovern's, you know, not only has a PhD in American history, but is also, you know, Methodist, deeply Methodist. Um, and by 1980, when McGovern is voted out of office, he can't understand what's happened in South Dakota. Um, but what's happened is that that older pre-war tradition has largely been snuffed out. That said, that said, as Brian points out, there are plenty of plenty of folks that we could be building coalitions with in rural parts of the United States, not just in the upper Midwest. I think of Indian country, for instance, as soon as you get west of the Mississippi, there are big swaths of rural parts of the West that are American Indian nations. Very important to remember. Some people argue that, you know, the 70s kind of youth counterculture fled these rural areas, including in the Dakotas. You can make an argument for that, but there are still little pockets that you start to build out from potentially. And I think it's finally really important to remember that we are kind of obsessed with this rural urban split right now. Our political discourse and our uh, popular discourse is all focused on it. But in fact, there was this great article in the Washington Post yesterday. Um, and it basically, I'll just, well, let me pull it up. I'll read the headline. Um, I won't share the screen. Um, basically the article says the 11 largest metropolitan areas in the US gave Trump more total votes than all of rural America combined. 14% of Americans lived in rural counties as of 2018. In other words, the depopulation of rural America, the fact that there aren't really small farmers anymore, certainly has had an effect on rural politics in America, no question. But 
I mean, there are just as many urban and suburban voters for Trump. In fact, there are more in the cities and suburbs. That kind of challenges how we frame things um, in, our, in these conversations, I would argue. And it challenges us to think about the possibilities of coalition work in all these rural parts of the country. Thanks, Mike. Really interesting. In a way, I mean, I was thinking your last comment, it's almost like you can't, there's a, there's a tendency in some circles to, to kind of blame Trump on people who live in the, in the countryside. Uh, but really, we should be blaming perhaps the aristocratic, anti-democratic electoral college, right? For, you know, for the way it, you know, grants electoral votes based on, uh, you know, based on space, you know, based on, you know, things very other other than population, uh, not just the people who live there, right? I mean, there's a kind of slippage there, which seems to be uh, very important. We have, we have a couple more questions, and I'd love to hear more about your thoughts. My own question, I'll slip in the, slip in the, uh, in the stack, uh, is, uh, to hear you say a little more about the possibilities for organizing in so-called red states. I still think I'd, I'd like to hear a little more and, and lessons from the, the nonpartisan league on that front. Um, so we had a couple questions in the in the chat box. Uh, one is from Joseph Nevins, a regular and sometimes a, 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 a guest actually on Children's Solidarity. Uh, Joe, I see your, your microphone seems to be working tonight. Joe, could you ask your question? After that, we will have uh, if he if he so chooses, we have Seren Mudiar, our, our co-producer, uh, who has, a, I believe, a question uh, for us as well. And we welcome additional questions from the chat box uh, from anyone else who has not yet spoken. Excuse me. Uh, yeah. Uh, take it away, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Uh, let me start by uh, thanking Mark for that beautiful song. Really appreciate that. Um, and thank you, Michael, for a really fascinating and stimulating presentation. Uh, you talked about the state-owned enterprises as a third rail of North Dakota politics. Um, you know, please help us make sense of this in terms of how it aids our understanding of the conservative slash right-wing components of North Dakota's political landscape. So does that third rail contribute to the right in some ways? And or does it, what, what are the openings that it might provide for broadening a populist, populist with a capital P, politics in Dakotas. Great, uh, Seren, if you are, I know Seren is multitasking as he often is as our, as our stalwart producer. Seren, could, I know you had a couple questions. Could you maybe give us one of, one of them before we bring it back to Mike and Mark? Actually, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go away with my go ahead with my questions. Uh, the first question, uh, kind of a throwaway question. Um, we talk about small d democracy, and yet socialism seems to have um, gained currency, certainly among young people, and uh, uh, and one that uh, uh, gave uh, that powered at least one of the insurgent candidacies within the Democratic Party. Why not socialism? What would be the difference between socialism uh, and small d democracy? Uh, I, I imagine you'd want to explore the property question. My, my, my second question uh, is a, probably a bit more complicated. How is it um, that populism, which often promises to simplify politics, how would that be suitable to today's uh, real lived experience, given the complexity of the working class and the idea that we would need to have 
caucuses and all sorts of coalition kinds of politics and therefore negotiation and perhaps even uh, less transparency in order to build a, a broader working class movement. So my question is, how suited is a populist model, a populist aspiration to the complexity of building a united or a multiracial and diverse working class movement? Great, thanks, Seren. Thanks, Joe. I think well, that's plenty for Mike and Mark to respond to, I believe, right there. So, Mike, take it away. Oh, yeah, these are magical and fantastic and really hard. This is great. Thank you so much for these especially thoughtful questions, all of them. Uh, okay, so state-owned industries in North Dakota is a third rail. Um, so the Nonpartisan League comes into power in 1918. They have to change the state constitution in order to create the state industries. They do so. They argue that case all the way to the Supreme Court, they win. So that's now enshrined in federal uh, jurisprudence that you can have state-owned industries because that was an open question um, legally before that point. And then right as they start building the mill and elevator and as they're organizing the bank, they get recalled. And their opponents who were also a nonpartisan organization of a coalition of um, disgruntled leaguers and establishment politicians come together and they, they kick the leaguers out of power um, at, at the state house in Bismarck. And then they continue building the mill and elevator and they actually organize the bank to be more thoroughly professional. So the very opponents of the league at the moment continued with their state-owned industries program. And the reason that they did so was because it was clear that an overwhelming majority of the population in the state wanted it to happen. And that relates to today and the possibilities for organizing the Dakotas today because Republicans and Democrats in North Dakota alike support those state-owned industries. The state bank largely is not a consumer bank. It largely supports small banks around the state. So you can start to imagine how a Republican could cozy up to that. Um, they do offer some incredible student loan programs for state residents, which is one of the reasons people are so excited about municipal and state banking. That said, that said, North Dakotans understand the state-owned industries as egalitarian. Most of us from the outside would understand them as socialist. And there are even some upper Midwesterners who love to romanticize a more radical past, a more radical rural life, and they like to refer to the state industries as socialist but North Dakotans understand them as egalitarian. And that egalitarian runs deep, that egalitarianism runs deep even today. So there was a constitutional amendment in North Dakota a couple of years ago, um, protecting small town drugstores from the big drugstore chains. The voters voted it, they, they supported it. They wanted to protect small town drugstores. It was like this weird ember of small property uh, democratic politics, lower middle class politics that kind of suddenly was like, whoa, I was staying with my aunt in Bismarck and she told me about it. I was like, what are you talking about? Right. They, this is a Republican state that the people there must just, you know, like want all the big chains to come in. But they actually have this commitment to egalitarianism. There was a fight against parking meters in the state of North Dakota in the 1950s. You won't find a parking meter in the state of North Dakota because it's seen as unfair. It's seen as not egalitarian. 
So this notion of egalitarianism is actually the way in, I would argue. Um, it's the way in to having any kind of conversation outside of organized labor or the 30% of state residents who consistently vote for the Democratic Party here. Thank you, Mike. Did you want to, uh, I mean, in some ways you addressed, I think, all the questions that were put forth, uh, but actually Seren's last one about the, the possible limits or possibility of, of populism as a framework for, for a, a terrain of complex, of great political and social complexity and diversity. I wondered, I don't know if you want to follow up on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I would say is that once you start digging into the, the, this tradition in American life, which uh, runs through the country's history and is iterated in all these varied ways, you see that, of course, the tradition is very complicated. That's the first thing I'll say. And anyone who tells you that this is a simplistic way to solve things is wrong. The second thing I would say is that we have examples of how to think along these lines of coalition. And here I'm thinking about Bayard Rustin in the late 1960s, um, uh, both right before and then after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, Rustin, of course, um, along with A. Philip Randolph, they outline a freedom budget. They basically argue that the future of progress for the African-American community in America is tied to industrial unionism. And they lay out an even better version of the Great Society. It's called the Freedom Budget. You can find it online. It's fantastic. It's fascinating. It's a road not taken. Um, of course, in African-American communities, you see um, ongoing work in the Black church. You see the emergence of Black power movements. And you see the emergence in the early 70s of Black capitalism. Right? Um, Bayard Rustin in 1971 writes another essay called Blacks in the Unions. It's fascinating reading because what they're doing is in that kind of black Marxist tradition, they're, they're seeing how capitalism is racial capitalism, right? And I think a socialist feminist would tell us, of course, that it's also profoundly gendered and sexualized. And we see that, um, you know, um, as Cedric Robinson said a long time ago, that racism and capitalism are born at the same time and they're so thoroughly interwoven. And Rustin, is one of the people who comes up with this way of thinking about building coalitions across difference around shared self-interest. The freedom budget is a perfect representation of that and it's deliberately targeted towards electoral formal party politics. Um, and it's largely forgotten, largely forgotten. Um, so I would encourage folks, that's how I would answer that question um, is that it is complicated. And we actually do have some examples of bringing together coalitions across class and across race. Um, some ideas, some proposals from some really smart, dedicated folks who thought about a lot and had a lot of experience. And it might be worth turning back, for instance, to that, to the late Rustin, just like we talk about the, the different uh, Martin Luther King Juniors, right? Um, where he ends with, with talking about militarism and poverty and racism is all deeply intertwined in a way that he knew in the 1950s, but it wasn't fully articulating in the movement. Bayard Rustin, of course, has a, has a trajectory too. And the late uh, Bayard Rustin is well worth pursuing, especially along the lines that you're suggesting. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, uh, you're reminding me also of Thomas Frank's book. He has a, that chapter on, on kind of black populism. He, he kind of reframes particularly the late Martin Luther King as kind of a, in relationship to the populist uh, precedent and the populist movement and uh, kind of black and Rustin as well, right? Figure there too. And again, it's kind of startling. You don't expect 
if you, you know, based on the rhetoric, many of us have internalized over the years, you don't expect to see that in, in a book on populism sometimes because of the racialized, um, you know, kind of reframing and appropriation of that, of that term, but it's, it's so important. And I appreciate you kind of to move towards an end to this show today. Um, we'll give you a final word in a moment, Mike, um, as well as in Mark too, if he, if he wants to. Not seeing any other pressing, urgent questions in the chat box and cognizant we're over 90 minutes here. Uh, I just wanna offer, uh, you know, again, uh, thanks to Mike Land, Michael Lansing for being here and for Mark Soderstrom for, for leading the, the hosting tonight and to all of you for your, your comments and questions. Um, I like that term egalitarian uh, you know, egalitarian and ecumenical, I think two things that, you know, we, we need to bring back. I mean, one thing I, I, I learned listening to you tonight, uh, Mike, and what makes me want to read more of your work is the way in which um, a space, a political space, a region, um, a political mobilization can look, dis you know, it seems like it can look very distant or very different up close than from a distance, right? And the importance, as you say, uh, of finding a way in into actual sustained engagement and organizing with people and 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 you know i mean i think that we should reflect on the language we use in that context i would i would i would unite with that um we uh again shelter and solidarity is here every two more or less or we every two weeks from now on twice a month december 3rd will be our next show as we we uh, take on the theme arts and resistance with some great slam poets and some likely some musicians and visual artists as well demetrius noble raymond nat turner and others uh, check us out on YouTube. Subscribe, please. Spread the word. Our, our, our website is shelterandsolidarity.org. You can find us on Facebook, follow us, share the content, make suggestions. Perhaps you can be a guest or musical interlude. Um, Dean Stevens is on the call, has provided us music in the past and will in the future. Mark has, has shown his musical colors, uh, and we'd love to host your voice as well. Mike, I'll give you a final word if you'd like one. Um, to wrap up the, the show and Mark as well. And uh, then we will ask folks to see us in two weeks. Mike, final word. I just want to thank everybody uh, for, uh, for being here, for being interested in something that might be more or less familiar to you. And I think that as we continue to face these overlapping crises, I just want to return to where we started. We have to think in, uh, in lots of different kinds of ways. We need to be exposed to many different ideological orientations on the left, many different sets of commitments. And I think that there is uh, incredibly fruitful stuff that comes from those kinds of intersections. So I just want to thank you all for being here and for providing a space for exactly that kind of conversation. Thank you, Mike. Mark? I would just like to take the, the moment to thank Michael for his very generous uh, gift of his time and, and sharing with us. It's been uh, such a pleasure. And uh, when COVID ends, I hope that uh, Mike and I can continue a longstanding Minneapolis breakfast tradition uh, that has been interrupted. It's wonderful to see him here at Shelter and Solidarity. Um, and really to thank Joe and the other producers for opening the space for this conversation. Um, and uh, thank you all very much. Yes, and thanks to you, Mark. And thanks to, let's to name those other producers. We have Tim Sheard, Linda Liu, Seren Mudliar, Mark himself, Kira Mudliar. Uh, we have our, our supporters uh, and our sponsors at Hardball Press, a publisher of working class stories including uh, a nurse, a new nurse book on nursing, 
uh, which is uh, an organizing nurses, which everyone should check out. That's Hardball Press. The journal Socialism and Democracy, of which a couple of us are on the editorial board. This is a research, a peer edited research journal for social movement activists and, and studying of social movements, socialism and democracy, sdonline.org. And also Encuentro Cinco, known affectionately here in Boston as E5, a hub for progressive and I'm going to st maybe I'll stop using the term progressive I don't know after this show you know it starts saying populist I don't know but I don't want to say that's a prog progressive and and uh, for now I'm going to say progressive organizing in downtown Boston social justice movements and in addition to that uh, we have the Community Church of Boston our newest co-sponsor uh, represented here tonight and often musically by Dean Stevens uh, if you'd like to co-sponsor the show if you'd like to get involved help us to amplify the, this project of building community conversation uh, please be in touch, shelterandsolidarity.org. Thank you all for being here tonight, and we hope to see you in two weeks. Until then, be safe, and as we say here on the show, uh, stay safe, stay engaged, and stay together. Shelter and Solidarity. See you next time.